All right, so, so glad to have each and every one of you with us this morning. If you would, find your seats. And as you head back toward it, I'd like everybody, if you would, stand with me one more time, please. And let's say this together. The Apostles' Creed, we have it up on the screen now. Some of you, I'm sure, have this memorized because of your various wonderful Christian heritages and backgrounds. And so this morning, let's, let's, uh, with all that's in us, let's lift this up together. Here we go. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I want to ask you if you would remain standing, please. We're going to go ahead and get our text this morning found in John chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you would, I'd like you to go ahead and read this with me today. Let's go. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." We have one more passage of scripture that I'd like for us to read this morning found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and it begins in verse 1. Are we up with that? There we go. Here we go. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Say that sentence again for what we proclaim. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Last verse. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you today for this amazing opportunity to stand on this Lord's day and to declare the word of God to your people. Thank you that as we stand this morning that we have united with people around the globe. Lord, not just with those currently worshiping you in this very moment, those in this particular day, but Lord, we, we have united with those down through the centuries to declare and stand and say today by the word of the Lord that we believe. We thank you. Thank you today for that personal credo to say, I believe. Lord, we know that that's the open door to the portal of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name today that you would open our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Holy Spirit, you're the only teacher. 
do what you do best in this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. So, who is Jesus Christ? That question has been posed, multiplied probably innumerable times over the last couple of thousand years. In the 1990s, there was a group of extremely liberal theologians who came together, referred to themselves as the Jesus Seminar, attempting to pull away from history all of the legend and myth, and attempting to really try to rewrite history. And we, we recognize that all of the attempts by higher critics, which really began in the 1800s, to not just merely demystify, but to take away the divinity of and merely say that Jesus Christ was a great man or a teacher. That has been attempted literally hundreds and hundreds upon thousands of times. It's been done by tyrants and dictators. It's been done by educators. It's been done by the, the academy. It's been done by unbelievers, atheists, over and over and over and over and over. And what I want to say to you this morning is that we can stand in the confidence and declare to you that we serve a God who revealed himself in history. The, the, the distinction between biblical Christianity and all of the other religions of the world comparative religions, studying them to see what the similarities and the differences are, the primary and the huge distinction between Christianity and the rest is that this one is rooted in history. It is verifiable. We, we, we know historically there was this person named Jesus who was called the Christ. This morning, it is, it is undeniable. We have to wrestle with the question then, who is this Jesus? Either he, as C.S. Lewis said, he is either a liar or he is a lunatic or he really is what he claimed to be and that's Lord of all, heaven and earth. He, he can't be two or three of those. He can only be one. Either he was a master deceiver and manipulator of people or he really truly was a sincere person without the guise of attempting to pull the blinds over on people, but he was just crazy, a lunatic, or he really is, as the statement says, honest to goodness, Lord of all creation. And so this morning, we just want to say that we are joining with centuries of the proclamation of this Jesus of which we stand and believe that he is not only the Son of God, but he is God the Son. There's a huge distinction that we must recognize because how you answer this question regarding the person of who Christ is is critical to biblical orthodoxy. I know I gave you a lot of terms last week and I'm really just going to give you a couple today, not so many. And, and, and I just want to say this to you. I could multiply last week by 10 when we start to talk about who the person of Jesus is. Because if you think about this, the creed is really divided into about three major sections, and then you've got some extra stuff below the Holy Spirit. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You may have grown up here saying it, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. There are different forms of the, of the creed, all basically saying the same thing, just using a, a little bit different language, a little bit more modern language today. 
So there's one statement. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker or creator of heaven and earth. That's the only thing that's said about God in this creed, in this statement. But then you see this next huge number of sentences that are all about Jesus. Why do you think they thought it was so important to define the identity of who this Jesus is? I want to tell you this morning that how you answer that question personally differentiates you and it certainly sets us apart from the rest of groups of Christians that we would refer to as the cults, those who may have a portion of truth. The difference between the cults and biblical Christianity is determined by how you answer this question. Because the cults, and I just want to be very brave this morning and at the same time very gracious, there are a lot of really very wonderful people who love the Lord but that are deceived by some of the teachings of the LDS, the Latter-day Saints, by the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're, they're God-fearing people who love the Lord that are a part of these particular groups that are some of the finest people you'll ever meet, but they fall short of recognizing that Jesus Christ is not just the Son of God and differentiating him from you and me because we are sons of God. We are his children. But I want you to recognize that there was a uniqueness to his begottenness of God. And that is, he was not merely the Son of God, but he was God the Son. Now, last week when we talked about a number of these particular principles, I gave you one great big idea, and that was the idea of God the Father that was transcendence. Everybody say transcendence. And, and, and I told you this, and I've got it in the notes this week. I, I want you to say this, God up there. Transcendence is basically this idea that this, this amazing, almighty, self-existent, doesn't need anything, completely sovereign, Lord of the universe, creator, this amazing God actually wants to have a relationship with you. And the way he's done that is through this second part that we talk about in the creed, and that is who Jesus Christ is. Because God up there became God down here in Emmanuel. And I want you to see this. The second part of this is God the Son, the Son of God, and God the Son, the principle is eminence. Everybody say eminence. Now, if you look at that word, you can see Emmanuel right there in it. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And the amazing thing is, is this God up there chose to identify so much with us and become a part of his creation that he sent his son to become a man so that we could be united and reconciled with him and literally be able to say, God, our Father. What did, what did we sing this morning in that great song that Greg chose? God, our Father, Christ, our brother. That's the powerful truth that we sing in joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And, and there is there's obvious, proper significance upon the recognition that we worship him because he's not just a good man who had a great teaching, but he is God manifested in the flesh. He moved into the neighborhood. He became flesh, and he dwelt. He tabernacled. He lived. Jesus grew up in a little house in Nazareth. I, I've been to the city of Nazareth in 2000. Nine, I guess it was that I that I went, and I'm thinking about how the, the 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 building market or the housing market was then. It was probably like a little mud hut, and and being a the oldest of a 
of some other brothers behind him, I guarantee you that every one of those boys didn't have their own bedroom. They, they grew up hanging around this guy, not even recognizing. The Bible says his brothers didn't know who he was. They didn't even recognize him until it was the time for him to be revealed. He comes walking down a dusty road of Jerusalem out to the Jordan River where his cousin John the Baptist is baptizing people who are coming for repentance. And literally in that moment, John grew up knowing he was special, but it wasn't until that moment that the heavens parted and a light shone and revelation came. And John said in, in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It wasn't just, hey, cuz, but it was, hey, this is Yeshua HaMashiach. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is the Mediator. This is our Redeemer. This is the Son of God become the Lamb of God. And by revelation, he understood that and saw that. Jesus was imminent. He was God with us. He lived among us. He demonstrated, showed by a lifestyle what it was to see God in the flesh. This morning, as you look to this particular passage of the creed, this is the longest section, and I think it's significant because they were wrestling over who this person of Christ was because there was a group in history that basically said, you know, he was really just a man that probably God sort of came along and put a divine spark into. And there was another group that basically said, no, he was really God, and he just sort of was a phantom, looked like man. Those were the Gnostics, which Paul was writing against trying to correct their heresy in the book of Colossians. And you know, you think, well, so what's the big deal about that? Well, let me tell you how that applies to your life. It is so significant that Jesus was not just a man who was a good man. He was not just God who looked like a man, but he was fully God and fully man walking around in a human body, two completely distinct natures dwelling in one tabernacle, in one body. And the reason that it's so critical that we understand that is because if he's not fully man, then he really cannot represent us before God. And if he's not fully God, then he can't represent God to us. So understanding that principle this morning, we begin with the concept in the creed. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. The apostle Paul said, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. We're going to get to that in a moment. Now, he, the creed goes on to say, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. There are seven things that are, that are here that I want to hit very quickly. The first one is this concept of the conception of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit himself. The Bible says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1 and 2, we have that understanding or the principles that are shared there when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and he said, listen, you're going to conceive and you're going to have a son and this holy thing which is going to be born of you will be called the Son of God. And Mary had one question. Okay, fine. But how can this be seeing I know not a man? And Mary basically says, "This look, I, I don't understand this. This never happened before in the history of the world. And God was basically saying, if I can create this whole thing on which you live, I certainly can divinely insert the DNA of God into your womb. And it, that's it. The, very, the very issue that is at hand is that this thing is not of man. She didn't know a man. She was a virgin, the Bible says. And I just want to tell you, there are a lot of stuff we can sit around and discuss as Christians here at Victory, and we are wide open to a belief spectrum in terms of how you see different things. There are essentials to the faith, and these in the Apostles' Creed are the irreducible minimums. He 
was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was born of the virgin Mary. If he's not born of a virgin, then he couldn't possibly have a sinless life. If he's not sinless, he can't take my place as a sinner. Are you hearing me this morning? This whole thing falls apart when we start to question and go, well, you know, I just, this is too, that's just too phantasmagorical. I can't even possibly consider the idea that God can put divine seed into the womb of a woman and then bring forth this whole new race, this God-man. I want to tell you this morning that if that's not what he did, then we're not saved and this whole thing is just a fallacy and we are still in sin and we are not delivered from anything. But I want to tell you this morning that what I'm bringing to you is the truth and he is the son of God in the flesh, died, buried, raised from the dead. Come on, 2,000 years later, who can say that? Born of the virgin, lived a perfect and sinless life, endured everything that you and I do endure, fully God, fully man. Yet the Bible says that he was hungry. He sat down on a well and met a woman in Samaria and he was thirsty. He hung on the cross and he said the words, I thirst. In all of his humanity, he experienced everything that you do. The Bible says in all points tempted as we are, yet without Sin, And because of that, he can stand before God and represent you and me and the just suffering for the unjust and the godly becoming the substitute for the ungodly. Let me tell you something. People ask me occasionally, how can you possibly believe in a loving God who would send anybody to hell? And I just look at them with grace and love and I go, how in the world can a holy God ever send anybody to heaven? We all deserve hell. I deserve hell. Nobody is good enough. And it is just by the grace of God and by the fact that this God-man came and not just was good, but was willing to lay down, live, and take every step of every day, make every decision based upon the will of God, do it perfectly in an obedience and suffering in the face of betrayal, in the face of crazy madmen who were about to, trying every step to, to, to trip him up and to take him down and to kill him, one trying to push him over the brow of a hill one day, and he just disappeared and walked through the crowd. Only a God-man can do stuff like that. This one who lived a perfect and sinless life, suffered for us, hung on the cross. The Bible says he was crucified. We say that in the creed because it's critical. God revealed himself not in a fully grown man. He didn't just let Jesus slip down off of a cloud, descend from heaven, come down as a fully grown man. He sent him as a baby so that he would endure and go through every stage of life, every kind of temptation that you were facing, teenager. Jesus was a 13-year-old at one time. He knows what you wrestle with. He understands the, the struggle and the thought life. He understands the whole issue of, of, of honesty and integrity and doing the right thing and telling the truth and obeying your parents. His dad was a businessman. He was a carpenter. He knew what it was to have to meet the deadline, have to get the thing done, make sure the customer was happy, do the work, do it with excellence, do it with a spirit that, that not only pleased his natural dad, Joseph, but one that exemplified God the Father. Everything that he did, it was with a spirit of excellence. Everything that he did, it was out of obedience. The Bible says he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And this is the crazy thing is that while at the same time he's fully God and knows everything in the sense of his humanity, he had to learn by trial and error how to do things. 
He didn't just hit five and all of a sudden go build a house. His natural dad, Joseph, had to teach him how to do things. Now, you know what? Just because you don't cut the wood right the first time, there's no sin in that. That's not an issue of sin. It's an issue of trial and error, of learning and growing, developing skills. His humanity was just like yours. He didn't get a special pass because he was God. As a matter of fact, he lived out his life in full recognition of every possible sin, but he chose not to. He chose to fulfill the law of God and to keep the perfect will of God. Come on, somebody. That's the issue. How does this relate to me? Because every one of us has a Savior. None of us has ever been able to say that we've done that. We've blown it so many times. Let me be the first at the head of the line and raise my hand. Like the Apostle Paul said, let me tell you something. Every one of us are born in sin, and the Apostle says, I am the chief of sinners. But you know what? We serve a Lord and a Savior who is without any of that, who is perfect, who is impeccable in character, who walked in the fullness not only of his divinity, but also of his humanity. He died. He experienced the pain, the anguish. He experienced the brokenness of friends betraying him. Some of you sitting here in this morning, you're dealing with stuff right now because of broken relationships. Jesus knows what you feel like. He lost people that he loved. His dear cousin, John, lost his head under a crazy king who made a stupid promise to a titillating young girl who danced for him and asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Jesus grieved. He, he sat before the grave of Lazarus and he groaned and he moaned and he wept and then he said, Lazarus, come forth, signifying that this human also was fully God and he was Lord over even the last enemy of death. Are you with me this morning? I love this. He was dead, fully dead, buried, laid in the ground. The Bible says he was raised again on the third day. We say this in the creed. He descended to the dead. Some of the particular creeds say he descended to hell. This particular understanding was the Old Testament understanding of hell or Sheol. It was the grave. It was the place of the dead. Literally, he went down, Second Peter says, into the place where all of the saints who were being held looking forward in faith to a Messiah that would come and save them. And the scripture says he went and preached the gospel to the souls that were in prison. And when they heard the word that they'd been looking for for thousands of years, Jesus opened the gates. He looked at Satan and he said, I will take those keys to death and hell. And he did a smackdown right in the middle of hell and he kicked the butt of the devil. And he said, I'll take those keys back. And he opened that Gate, and the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, he led captivity captive and he ascended. And the Bible says he gave gifts unto men. We declare in this that he was died, he, he, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected on the third day, and that he ascended to the Father. And I want you to understand this morning is this critical issue of what he's doing right now. He's not just sitting around up there waiting for daddy to say, go get him. But he's actively involved right now. He is a man in the throne with a ministry. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the Bible says. 
Hebrews 7.25, where he ever lives to make intercession for you. Your Savior didn't just do something for you 2,000 years ago. He is doing something for you right now in this moment. He is praying for you, Jack Stanford. He's praying for you, Danny Manus. And he who has already run the race and won it, who has already conquered every foe and put it under his feet and vanquished even death, he looks at the struggle that you're facing, having been there and tasted death for every man, and he's speaking your name before the presence of God right now. He's won this thing. My God, I want to tell you that the, the amazing story is that you look at the end of the book and we can celebrate it now because we win. We win because he's already won. Robert Murray McShane is a great preacher of the Word of God, a Scottish man, and he says, what confidence would I have if I knew that Christ were in the next room praying for me? How I could live with a sense of boldness if I knew that Christ were on the other side of that wall in that next room praying for me. And then he says, but I realize that there is no distance in prayer. Christ is praying for me. Are you hearing that, sir, ma'am? The struggle that you face this morning, the decision you have to make regarding your business, the challenge that you have right now in your relationships, the struggle you face in an addiction that, it, that attempts to come back and wrap its captive arms around you once again. God has defeated that in his son, Jesus Christ. He was tempted. He was tempted in every way that you are. He was tempted to eat too much. He was tempted to drink too much wine. He was tempted sexually. Come on, there were women that obviously threw themselves at him. I, I, I guarantee you, in every kind of way, the Bible says in all points he was tempted, yet without sin. And because of that this morning, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's in the throne with a body, fully God, fully man, seated at the right hand of the Father, saying, God, help Tony. Father, Father, stand with Perry and Pam. Father, send your strength. Hear that this morning. He is your advocate. He is standing as your representative in your place, in your stead. This morning I want to tell you that he is coming back without sin unto salvation. And he's coming back to judge. The creed says in the old form, the quick and the dead. Quick is the idea of living. You pull your fingernail down into the quick and you know about it when that happens. Because the quick is alive. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And I just want to say this to you this morning as I begin to bring this message to a close, you need to recognize today that if you've already trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you were judged 2,000 years ago as a sinner. You're not going before Jesus at the Bema seat hoping that your good works are going to be good enough to get you in because you understand if you're saved, you recognize that none of us have enough good works to be able to tip the scale in our favor. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes, what are we saying in this whole series? I believe. 
the Latin word credo. We get the word creed from it. The Latin word credo literally means I believe. That's what the word creed comes from. You were saying, I believe. It's a declaration. It's a position. It's not something that I just merely mentally assent to. But I'm saying my life depends on this. What I believe dictates how I behave. When I begin to recognize that I have a Savior who loves me, who is also Lord... And so many times in American Christianity, we emphasize this. All you hear preached every Sunday morning is basically just a John 3.16 that gets warmed up with another spice in some kind of a way. And we've got multitudes of millions of people who really have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, but they're still in diapers 25 years later in their walk with Christ because they've not been fed the bread of life and the meat in due season from the Word. And I want to tell you what I attempt to do in the struggle that I face Anybody who stands on this platform behind a pulpit and holds a Bible and attempts to declare the word of the Lord has the challenge that we have to bring milk to the babes and we have to feed the adolescents with some bread from God and those that are mature saints get some meat. Come on, somebody. Well, come on and praise the Lord if you're going to do it. Don't, don't play. <laughs> Hebrews 5 the writer basically says, listen, guys, you've been walking with God so long. By now, you ought to have your exercises. You ought to have your senses exercised, discerned, trained, and taught so that you can know the difference between good and evil. You should be eating meat by now. But it's critical that I go back and give you, once again, the foundational, the milk of the word. God, don't let that be said of us. Our, our mission at Victory is to build disciples. We want to bring the new converts along. We want to keep seeing people get born again and, and growing in God and putting the past behind them, driving a stake, a, a, a center point. Do you realize that Jesus comes and he changes the world from a center point in history, from a vortex, from a hinge point in history, literally from the middle of history. It changes. It's, it's B.C. and it's A.D., it's before Christ, and it's in the year of our Lord. Your life is the same way. What's in the past is covered by the blood. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you will stand before the throne of God, before the, the judgment seat of God, not to see if you're going to be good enough to go to heaven. That's already yours. The, the free gift of eternal life is in Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. Everybody said the gift of God. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I, I just want to say, I want to challenge that ridiculous notion that you can blow it one time and lose it. If you can lose eternal life, it wasn't eternal in the first place. It was temporary life. And I'll leave that alone. I'm not for a second saying that you can go out here and live like the devil and, and be saved and have eternal life. If you've got eternal life in you, you might try to pull some of them smack you used to do. But I'm going to tell you, you can't do it and enjoy it anymore because there's something on the inside of you that motivates you to cry out for righteousness. And the biggest struggle that you and I face is renewing our mind that the old man's dead and my past and all the memories and how I used to live, I've got to shuck that mess off. We're going to lay down some old man in the baptism of death and burial and resurrection and the identify, identification with Jesus this morning. And this amazing, look over here. We had one guy visit us one Sunday several months ago. And he says, I guess he looked at our little $190 galvanized horse trough, and he felt sorry for us. And you know what? I, I, it didn't bother me one bit. I, I, here back oh, a year or so ago, I just started saying, you know, we can't keep making these people wait who've come to Christ until we can go hit the swimming pool at the Busby's house in August. 
We need to be baptizing these people quickly. And you know what? We started doing that in obedience to the Lord. And I, you know, I just looked around and I thought, well, what can we do? I went down to Tractor Supply, honey, <laughs> South Haven, Mississippi, and I found me a baptismal tank. <laughs> and we've been faithfully just going at it. And a brother walked in here and he says, you know what? I have, this has been my ministry. I have put almost 30 of these lovely portable baptism tanks into prisons and into some small local churches. And he said, I want to give you one. He said, I just want to tell you that when you guys get on your property and build your new building and you have a lovely one that is permanent and installed, will you give this to a prison? I said, dude, we'll give it in your name. What are you talking about? (laughs) So this morning, we're going to have the joy and the privilege in the 1045 service to be able to baptize a young man who's going to initiate and break this thing in for us. And just somebody walked in and said, hey, I want to bless you with this. Isn't that amazing? Come on, put your hands together and give God praise. You've already been judged as a sinner. When you stand before the throne, you will be judged as a saint. How have you lived your life? Is it worthy of rewards? 1 Corinthians 3 says, you know what? All of your work may burn up, but you yourself will be saved as by fire if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. Now, this is the deal. In so many circles, all we see is an emphasis on a regular basis of Jesus being Savior. Let me tell you, he's called the Savior 24 times in the New Testament. Rarely do we ever hear a pastor on TV or in a pulpit regularly declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the boss, Greek word kurios. He is calling the shots. He is intricately involved in the decisions of my life. And yes, there are consequences to decisions that I make. He's Lord. Jesus Christ is called the Savior 24 times in the New Testament. He is called Lord 767 times. Do you think maybe that American Christianity is majoring on the minors? We can't be saved without a Savior, but man, we are missing a significant part of the message if we don't regularly declare to people that this Savior is also the Lord over everything in your life and mine. And He cares. He cares about. That means that what used to captivate me, Jesus wants to help me get free from it. He wants to get me set free and delivered from the sin patterns of the past because He's Lord. Are you guys hearing me this morning? He's Lord. When the early Christians said Jesus Christ is Lord, they were literally making a political statement because they lived under an empire where it was regularly stated Caesar is kurios. Caesar is Lord. They believed that he was, the emperor was the manifestation of God in the flesh. Being a human being alone, no godness about Augustus Caesar. So when Christians came and started declaring Jesus Christ is kurios, Jesus Christ is Lord, they were literally putting their lives on the line and possible, possibly being martyred because of standing in defiance against an empire, a government that declared that who was wearing the laurel wreath and who the Caesar was was Lord at the time. It was under those kinds of circumstances where Christianity spread and flourished. I wonder sometimes 
what degree of persecution the American church is going to have to face for us to be willing to stand up and declare in the face of political incorrectness. That's nothing. In the face of open rejection and persecution, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. Can I have an amen? Amen. All right, let me finish this this morning. The person of Christ speaks to both his nature and his work. Jesus is the God-man, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried. On the third day, he rose again. In between that, he descended to the dead and he led captivity captive preaching to those in prison, waiting for the gospel. Those who believed in the old covenant, who died in faith, yet not having received the promise, they got it when Jesus went down, pulled them out of Abraham's bosom, out of paradise, out of Sheol. I want to tell you this morning that this Jesus is everything that every leader in the Old Testament had. He was prophet, he was priest, he was king. The prophet speaks to the people of God and declares to them the way to God. But Jesus didn't just point the way. He is the way himself. And so the prophet becomes a priest and he represents us. He, he stands literally as a days man, as a mediator, as Ezekiel talks about, one who stands in the gap, who reaches to God. And it's literally the picture of the cross, which is the portal of heaven, driven down into the soil of the earth, yet reaching up to the heavens. He not only offered a sacrifice on an altar as a priest, but the priest became the sacrifice himself. And this is the crazy thing, saints. Old Testament Israel was looking for a king to come and rescue them. They weren't looking for a priest. And because they didn't look for a priest, they didn't recognize him when he walked into their midst. And I want to tell you, I believe that's, that's the flip side of this today. I think a lot of folks are looking for him to come back and basically instead of seeing him as a king returning, they're looking for a priest this time. Jesus Christ is coming again. He lived for us as a prophet pointing us to God, as a priest reaching between God and man and reconciling two enemies, bringing peace between the two. But I want to tell you something this morning. He's not just going to be king one of these days. He is your king right now. If you're going to enjoy the blessings of eternal life, not just in heaven in the sweet by and by, but eternally, uh, eternal life is not just a long time. As a matter of fact, eternity is no time at all. It's not a long, 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 keep going long, long to infinity, a long time. It's where there is no more time. And the God who dwelled and came down literally in this little bitty 33 and a half year period and lived in the middle point of history, the God who inhabits eternity past and eternity future on both ends, who's already into 2012, when we get there, he will already have been there because he's dwelling in it right now. He's the God of your past and your present and the God of your future. When you step into Monday, you guess what? You're going to wake up tomorrow and God was already there before you got there. Are you hearing me? He's the God who is sovereign, who is big enough, who can order the steps of your life, and he wants to see you walking in freedom and liberty and the goodness and the grace of God. 
Jesus. His, literally, his name means Savior. You should call his name Jesus, what the angel said to, to Joseph, because he shall save his people from their sins. It is the Greek derivative of the Old Testament name Joshua. Savior, God is salvation. Jesus Christ. Christ is, is the Greek transliteration of the whole concept of the Messiah. He is the Christos. He is the anointed one. He's, he's the one who comes to give himself for you, to rescue you, to redeem you, to buy you back, to set you free. He is your deliverer from heaven. But guess what? After he's bought you back, he has every right to speak into your life because now I'm not my own. I belong to him and he is my Lord. He is my master. He is my boss. He's prophet. He's priest. He's king. He's Jesus. He's Christ. He's Lord. Everybody say he's the boss. Bow your heads with me please this morning for a word of prayer. Oh great God, we thank you for this amazing opportunity to stand today. We thank you, Lord, that the circumstances that we face, we know, oh God, that you understand the struggle that we're in. God, that you've already given to us everything, everything that pertains to life and godliness. You've given, to this, given that to us in your son, Jesus Christ. I ask today by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that you move and work in each and every one of these people that are sitting here under the sound of my voice. God, I pray that the voice within the voice, the Holy Spirit himself has spoken into hearts today that you are drawing people to yourself. Lord, that you're igniting hope, that you're growing faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And as these have heard the word today, I thank you that there is just that simple step that they must take to respond and to say, Jesus, I believe. Notice today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, the creed doesn't say, nor does the word ever say, we believe. It comes down to a personal statement of faith. I believe. Every one of us were born in sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. I can stay on the devil's payroll and I'll get my wages. The wages of sin is death. The crazy thing, it's not just having a life that is characterized by things that are dying on this side, but it means that I'll spend eternity in a state of destruction and death. You have something on the inside of you. Who you truly are when this body is laid down goes on living. It is immortal. Your soul. Every one of you stands in the gap this morning in the place of asking the question, who is Jesus Christ? And today, your answer is critical to how you will spend eternity. I just want to ask you right now, if there's anybody here who has never taken that step of faith, or, or maybe you've been coming for a while and you've never crossed that line of faith to say, I trust in Jesus Christ alone. No longer my will or my actions or my works or any of that stuff. But I know that I've got to have a Savior because I'm a sinner. I'm going to pray a prayer in just a second. And if anyone in the room would like to be included in that prayer to say, I want to put my trust, finally, I want to put my trust in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord. With every head bowed, every eye closed, would you just slip up your hand? I just, I'm not going to embarrass you. Anybody want to be included in that prayer? Anybody in the room? Praise God. 
Anybody? This, yes, there's one right over here. Thank you. Any of you that are believers this morning who've been walking part of the company of faith, part of the saints, you sense the Spirit of God speaking to your heart or drawing you to make a fresh commitment today and a fresh start in your walk with God. Say, I really want to know Jesus Christ in a greater way. I want to get into the Word. I want to seek His face. I want to do all that He's called me to do and be. Anybody today, you want to be included in this prayer, just lift your hand for a fresh start. Yes, there are a few in the room this morning. Father God, I thank you for the hearts of each of these people in this place today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you draw us. Lord, you made us. You know us. You know our frame. The psalmist said, you know that we're dust. Lord, I thank you that your anger is but for a moment, but your, your joy and your mercy, your favor lasts for a lifetime. God, I thank you for that this morning, that you, by your Holy Spirit, you reach out and you draw Lord, these, that one today who said, Jesus, be my personal Savior and Lord. I just pray right now, oh God, that as, as we make that statement of faith and say, I believe. Say that in your heart right now. I believe in Jesus Christ who died for me, a sinner. Come into my heart and save me and change me. Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me to be all that you've called me to be. We ask you for that in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen.